You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where after this issue, there can be only one. Green Lantern. Until Rebirth. There's no time for us. There's no place for us. What is this thing that builds our dreams, yet slips away from us? Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out, however, we're going to be focusing primarily on Kyle Rayner and the main Green Lantern in the title, Hal Jordan. If you were listening last week, you know we finished up our coverage of the epic storyline of Final Night, the story where Hal Jordan redeemed himself and saved the planet from the Sun Eater. J. David Weeder was on to help me with that issue, and truly it was an epic and very overlooked story. It was a done-in-one, done-in-one-month. It wrapped up Hal Jordan's story arc, and gave him the heroic end that I think that he truly needed and that he truly deserved. And in this issue, we're going to be looking at at the funeral for Hal Jordan. And afterwards, I'll probably be talking a little bit about what Hal Jordan's legacy meant and how I feel about this entire run up to this point of the Green Lantern Titans. In the 90s, when Hal Jordan essentially went bad and There was a lot of people who were very vehemently opposed to Hal Jordan going away, and I'm going to try and give my reasoning to why I think the continuation of the Green Lantern storyline without Hal was actually a good thing, and actually it expanded the universe and how much that I really enjoyed it. I don't begrudge people nowadays for liking the Green Lantern series written by Jeff Johns. It's had its good storylines, and Hal Jordan, yes, is an interesting character. But there was just something about the idea that the universe could go on without its hero. That things could continue on, and people could step up to do the things that Hal Jordan did, and even do things that may be even greater than what Hal Jordan did. But we'll get to all of that, as well as the coverage of Green Lantern number 81, and some of your emails as soon as I play these promos for a couple of Demonza Corps mandated podcasts. So, after we get back, we'll be taking a look at Green Lantern number 81. Hello, ladies. Listen to your man. Now listen to me. Now listen to your man. Now listen to me. Sadly, he isn't me. But if he stopped downloading lame-ass podcasts and switched to Two True Freaks, he could learn to sound like me. Look down. Back up. Where are you? You're on the Enterprise with a man your man could sound like. What's in your hand? Back at me. I have it. It's a long box filled with comics that you love. Look again. The comics are now episodes. Anything is possible when your man listens to two true freaks and not lame asses. I'm on a tauntaun. The Bronze Age of Comics. An era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. 
Then there are the Alan Moore stories for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weeder also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And once again, we are back. But before we get into coverage of Greenland number 81, let's go ahead and take a look at the email bag to see what kind of letters we've gotten in this time. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and since I've got a little time at the beginning of the show, I'm going to go ahead and try and bust through all the emails we've got and get them out of the way and clear out the mailbox. So we'll start with a few letters from Mr. Scott Davis, my wonderful Canadian listener. Scott has his first letter here entitled Green Lantern 7475 and Green Lantern Silver Surfer. He starts out saying, Hi Sean, I was able to get through some issues this weekend and I thought I'd pass along my notes. Green Lantern Silver Surfer. This was a good issue and the art was excellent. I'm unfamiliar with the DC Marvel crossovers and I'm very surprised that they actually did them. <sighs> At this time, DC and Marvel were actually speaking to each other. They were on maybe not the best of terms, they were competitors, but they weren't adverse to having crossovers. So. It wasn't until a little later when uh, when Quesada came in that it basically became a big rivalry. So it was nice that we had a time where we could have Marvel DC crossovers. I really like the cover, Scott continues, and he says, I agree with Michael that Kyle was too trustworthy of Thanos in the issue. I really enjoyed the scene where Thanos blew up the world that Parallax just created, and speaking of Parallax, I'm starting to get tired of this character. I think they should just put the character away for a while and let Kyle run with the show. That's kind of coincidental that uh, this email is being read on the show where we're going to be putting Parallax away for a pretty good long time. Scott continues in Green Lantern number 74. The cover teases us with who will die, but I have a strong feeling it's going to be none of them. Spot on. You, you, caught, the, uh, you caught the cheat that they put on the cover. I noticed that Mars writes Kyle as being quite whiny at times. He can't take his ex-girlfriend's ship, so he has to create a new one, and he's bringing up the new bottle again. I guess Mars wants to show us how immature he is at times. Yeah, could be. And then he says, so Charisma is the character that dies in this issue. Who? Sadly, unless you were reading the Englehart uh, Staten run of uh, Green Lantern, you probably wouldn't know who Charisma was either. Yeah, it seems that all the... Uh, Former Green Lanterns all become dark stars eventually, so there you go. He continues, overall, I really like this issue. Pelletier's art is excellent, too. Then he goes on, Green Lantern 75, this was a good issue. Graven wearing He-Man's chest plate is hilarious. Yeah, um, I'm certain uh, Prince Adam was willing to lend that out since he really didn't have a title of his own. My only familiar familiarity with Adam Strange is the You Mind story arc that you covered earlier in this series by Gerard Jones. It was not the greatest story arc. This was a deadly farewell to the Dark Stars. In Green Lantern 70, they mentioned how the Dark Stars cleaned up the mosaic before O was destroyed, and I'm very curious if they actually covered that in their series. I'm on the fence of going back and collecting the series, though. What do you think? I wouldn't really give it a second thought. Uh, I'm certain you could probably look up on wiki pages or maybe even go to like a DC wiki and find out what's going on in the story, but I wouldn't say tracking down dark stars is a thing that you necessarily have to do. And uh, actually, speaking of Adam Strange, I'm glad I just recently heard that Adam Strange is actually going to be coming back into the books uh, in Justice League Canada, I believe, uh, written by Jeff Lemire, so... Adam Strange is going to have a part in the DC New 52, so I guess that's a positive thing. Scott finishes up saying, Also, I was curious if you picked up the Sergio Argonis DC Destroys issue. Or Destroys DC issue. Is it good? Never picked it up, but if it's anything like any of other Argonis stuff, like the Gru, Gru the Wanderer was hilarious stuff. And I think that was also written by Mark Wade, if I recall. Uh, fun stuff. Nice parody of the uh, Conan storyline. 
But he goes, I almost caught up to you, Sean, and then I'll stop boring your listeners with these long emails. Scott. Well, Scott, I'm not upset in the least that you're writing emails. I really appreciate reading them. In fact, we've got a couple more from Scott, including this next one, entitled A Warrior's Passing. Scott writes, Hi, Sean. Well, this is a sad email. I've come to the conclusion of the Guy Gardner Warrior series. I really enjoyed the series and your commentary on the issues. I got a few comments on A Warrior's Passing. Number 43 issue, uh, this was a good issue of Guy beating up his old foes, and I was actually caught off guard that Major Force was back. The art by Brad Corby was excellent too. And he asked if Aresia is really dead. Eh, for the time being she was, but as you know, everyone comes back. Who's going to fill the slutty hero character in the future Green Lantern issues? Oh, there'll be plenty of characters that'll have overly revealing costumes. In fact, fatalities come out pretty soon, so we can look forward to that. Warrior number 44. It only makes sense to have Mitch Bird back, and wow, his art is amazing. Mm-hmm. I can't agree with you more. That's that's some of Bird's best artwork in the series. I can't believe how much he's improved since he was last on the series, Scott says. This was an awesome issue. The cover was cool with the hole blown through major force. House construct of Aresia in her slutty outfit on her deathbed was hilarious. Yeah, again, hooker gem. I never got it. I was surprised that Martique was blown to pieces like that. I guess they're trying to tie up all loose ends in the issue. This issue is brutally violent, and the execution of Major Force at the end was great. Sadly, that doesn't take either. The sunset on the end was fitting for Warrior. I actually thought that guy was going to lose his Voldarian powers in this issue, but I'm glad to see the character live on. I can't wait to see him show up in future DC issues. Well, I'll be covering some of those later. Uh, there are some showcase issues, and he shows up in the Green Lantern story every once in a while, so you won't be seeing Guy go away, but we'll definitely be seeing a reduction of his character in the series. Scott finished up to sum up the series. I think my favorite issues were as follows. Guy Gardner Reborn, Gerard Jones at Joe Staten, excellent three-issue series about Guy trying to find his own, lay, own way with the help of Lobo, because it's the 90s, after Hal Jordan became Green Lantern of Earth again. Then Yesterday Sins, with Chuck Dixon and Joe Staten, shows the struggle that Gardner faces as a child and an abusive asshole in the Baltimore inner city. Warrior 22 and 23, Bo Smith and Mitch Bird. Guy and his friends quest deep in the jungle to search for a source of superpowers. That's always awesome stuff. Warrior number 29, Bo Smith and Phil Jimenez. Guy hosts a party at his Warrior's Bar. Uh, the issue 29, if you get even one issue of Guy Gardner Warrior, this is the one to get. I, I fully agree. Warrior number 41, Bo Smith, Mark Campos, and Mike Parabek. A real-life adventure mirrors the plot of the proposed Guy Gardner television show. Another great issue to check out. Mike Parabek's art is phenomenal, and it's just a ton of laughs to read that book. Thanks, Sean. Scott wraps up. He says the series was excellent. Now I'm going to go honor Warrior by eating some back bacon and maple syrup. I'm also looking forward to an interview with Bo Smith and you can score it. Scott, I'm still working on that. I actually have Bo Smith friended on uh, Facebook and I'm getting updates for him. And I just, it's one of those things where I've written him a couple of times and haven't gotten a reply, but I don't want to be the nagging fanboy and like, uh, Mr. Smith, could, could you come and uh, be on my show, please? I, I really enjoy you. So it's trying to balance that line. But we've got one more email from Scott, and that is entitled Hard Traveling Heroes, The Next Generation. Starting out, he says, Hi, Sean. Hello again, Scott. I was able to read the first or read the Hard Traveling Heroes, The Next Generation story this weekend. And first, I want to thank you for your awesome show. I've been uh, through I've been with you through the first 77 issues of Green Lantern and 44 issues of Guy Gardner. Now that I'm officially caught up, I'm looking forward to reading these, these issues on a weekly basis instead of my sprint over the next last nine months to catch up. <laughs> that is that is endurance, sir, that you actually did that, and I appreciate you actually going out and finding those issues and reading them along with me. I'm glad you're able to be caught up and you can not have to have like seven or eight issues you have to read in a day. So there you go. You can catch up one issue at a time now. Green Lantern 76, he says, I haven't read the original series between Green Lantern and Green Arrow, so this is pretty new to me. This was a great issue, and you're right that Kyle does show immaturity by jumping to the conclusion that Connor is gay simply because he hasn't kissed any girls. 
yeah, that was a bit uncomfortable, but it wasn't like Kyle was being judging. He was just like, oh, uh, that's okay if you are, and it's okay if you're not. But it did seem out of place that that was where his mind went to in the first place. Green Arrow, number 110. You guys mentioned that Desolation is mysteriously back from the Mosaic, but in issue 70, John had told Kyle that he and the Dark Stars evacuated the Mosaic communities before Kyle destroyed Oa. So I guess this takes care of the continuity problem. This was a fun issue, and you're right, Kyle and Connor do look kinda gay together in this issue, and it's funny that the cops are on them pretty quickly. Yeah, two guys, one in a pink shirt, one in a leather jacket, walking very close to each other, sort of putting arms around each other, in the middle of a small town that's being run by corrupt uh, police officials. Yeah, you gotta think there's gonna be some trouble brewing there. Greenlander number 77, Scott continues, I agree with you that Kyle is really annoying for how naive, is, naive he is for not listening to what Connor has to say about his dad. This was another great issue, and it's very interesting how political it is, especially with how they portray Aaron Rayner as a right-wing nutcase. Was Kyle so naive that he didn't see the nuclear symbol on the satellite? Obviously not. And he finally wraps up saying, Pelletier draws an amazing crack shot, that's for sure. Any drawing of a female that Pelletier does is awesome. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's disturbingly hot. Green Arrow number 111. This was another great issue, and I recommend the four-issue series to everyone. The art was amazing, too, and uh, I agree with you. Uh, Campanella did a... I think it was Robert Campanella who did the artwork there. Really good stuff as well. It was a nice reveal at the end with Aaron being Kyle's uncle instead of his dad. I'm going to miss the lustful crack shot. Uh, maybe she'll be back in the Green Lantern books. I'm trying to remember if she shows up again be interesting thanks sean and have a great week scott well thank you scott for writing in and and reading through all the books it takes a lot of dedication to do that and i'm glad to have you as a listener but moving on from my emails from scott davis my wonderful listener to the canadian great white north yes i can't speak i've got a uh, listener from the south in fact one from the deep south south carolina my good friend and host of Earth Destruction Directive and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over at the Two True Freaks Network, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and his first email reads, It's not easy being green. Lantern. Or arrow. Luke writes, Sean, another episode, two more solid issues of a Green Lantern and a Green Arrow, who both terrify the current management at DC. Ah, the 90s. Yep, there's still no Connor Kent in the current continuity in... Yeah, Kyle is secondary to Hal again, but I've harped on that enough, and we'll get in more of that at the end of this issue. Uh, Luke continues, The hard-traveling heroes, the next-generation story, leaning leftists, is no surprise to me, since the original ones were the same. Here in the middle of the Clinton administration, the idea of writing lefty stories seen as bold and daring to young middle-aged liberal comics writers. Uh-oh. You know the kind of story I'm talking about, especially at DC in the 90s. I consider these to be a product of their time, much like Bronze Age, Bronze Age books were a product of their time. So you take it in stride, because as, have, as we've discussed before, this era was rife with politics, but most writers were decent enough to keep their politics to themselves and simply write good stories like we get here. I agree. Um, I know Chuck Dixon, as Michael Bailey said, I wouldn't say he has a conservative view or a, a view that uh, mimics the Republicans, but... I think this was kept as apolitical as it possibly could. Yes, the uh, character of Kyle's supposed dad was pretty right-leaning, and you could see him as an analog to the up-and-coming uh, Fox News-type characters of uh, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly, and maybe probably more of an analog of Rush Limbaugh at the time, but I don't think it came off as heavy-handed as it does in a lot of other a lot of other books. I know you covered uh, the IDW Godzilla Godzilla series Gangsters and Goliaths, I think it was the one that was just incredibly heavy-handed leftwise. So, yeah, I think this was a good balance. Hearing this episode and the previous one started to cement in my head that Connor Hawk is a lot like Obadiah Archer from the Valiant comic Archer and Armstrong, Luke writes. Young, blonde, naive, extremely skilled hand-to-hand combatant and weapons user. Spent time in a monastery, parental issues, and so forth. 
maybe I'm overthinking this, but Archer Armstrong debuted in 1992, two years or so before Connor showed up, and is met with a lot of critical acclaim, like most of the Valiant books. Of course, if that's the case, Archer won in the long run, and he's still featured in a monthly comic, and I'm pretty sure Connor Hawk is no longer exist. Woohoo, you know it. Uh, yeah, Connor Hawk still isn't being published, as far as I know, in the Green Arrow comic. But uh, yeah, I guess the Valiant comics has have made her the resurgence, so uh, I guess credit goes to Valiant. Regarding legacy heroes, again, Luke says, uh, versus bringing back the classics, I've said it before and will say it again. As Philbin says in pa Phantom of the Paradise, a song is a song. You either dig it or you don't. If someone doesn't like something you enjoy, ask them why. And if someone likes something you do not, once again, ask them why. Grow the hobby from our different perspectives instead of us shrinking and dividing it. Well said, Luke. Um, too often we get caught up in our own likes and desires of comics, and we feel it's necessary to tear down other people's likes and desires, and it does nothing. It does nothing to benefit the comics industry as a whole or enjoyment of comics as a whole. And I'm trying to get over that myself. I love this era, but I don't begrudge people for loving the new era of Green Lantern. If they're getting enjoyment out of it, they need to do what makes them happy. And again, I will harken back later in the show to something that Shag said over at Fire and Water and on Fuse from Long Boxes. Find your joy. Find your sweet spot. And, and this is my sweet spot right now. I'm enjoying it. Luke finishes up saying, maybe I'm asking too much for comics fans. It was enough to drive a man to drink, or at least listen to more podcasts anyway. Keep up the good work, Luke. And he says, P.S., because of, he says, of course Cobra had a dental plan. Dr. Mindbender was a dentist after all. I had no idea. He says there's a great pick in the IDW continuation of G.I. Joe where Mindbender uses the brainwave scanner to brainwash Storm Shadow and the Baroness, and informs Cobra Commander that he also implanted in their brains a subtle mental suggestion to floss. That Dr. Mindbender, he is truly, truly evil. But that finishes up that email from Luke. We've got one more from the the Madden cop, Mr. Jackanetti, here entitled Legends of the Sadly Cancelled Guy Gardner. And uh, Luke writes again, Sean, all I can say about the issue of Green Lantern is that Sonar is back, 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 back. Yes. I have to say that while I've really enjoyed hearing about Kyle Rayner's stint slinging the ring, he has not exactly acquitted himself all that well when it comes to a rogues gallery. Sonar as a meddler is hilarious, but is this guy really a threat to someone with the level of power of Green Lantern? I would say not, but uh, there you go. That's one of the problems I think Kyle has had, is his rogues gallery never really developed the way that, say, the Flashes did or Batman's. Uh, it's just been kind of lame characters, but eh, there you go. Say what you will about Jeff Johns, but he knows how to throw a threat at his heroes. Do, do Kyle's bad guys improve going forward? We'll see coming up. In, in a few weeks, we'll have the introduction of Fatality as a character, who will be a major thorn in uh, Kyle's side for a while. And Major Force uh, eventually makes a comeback, but I don't know if there's any specific character that really defines Kyle's uh, Kyle's rogues gallery. Uh, so it's, like I said, it's not on the level of some of the other characters in the DC universe. Luke continues, as silly as they were, guys' rogues were much fun, much more fun to hear about. <laughs> Except for Black Serpent. He was just, he was just bad. I'm pretty sure that I have one single Legends of the Dead Earth annual, The Flash, which I'm also pretty sure I have never read. So hearing about this annual number two was educational for me. I really think the issue demonstrated both Smith's mythology for Guy Gardner. We've talked about this in previous emails and on my guest spot episodes that the idea of that the idea of Smith's take on Guy as a modern day warrior, today's Tom Sawyer, right? we just had some rush playing earlier, was more suited to wading through a medieval battlefield than on the streets of the then 20th century. But as the final segment of this annual showed us, when there is no one left to fight, even the warrior can find peace. And yeah, that drawing by Jimenez, you can find it on the net. It's a beautiful rendition of Guy with a sort of older look and a little gray in his hair and it's just it's a nice ending to the guy gardner storyline you know coupling with the ending that he had in issue 44 so yeah 
if you have money and you have time and you want to, go seek this one out as well. Luke continues on. These little vignettes sound like, on the surface, like filler material, perfect for an annual. But your descriptions and comments lead me to believe that this particular issue is definitely worth picking up. Thanks and keep up the good work, Luke. And then Luke uh, fills me in that he says, P.S. Adam Strange is coming back in the new 52. DC has announced that he'll be a part of Jeff Lemire's upcoming Justice League Canada series and that Adam will be a Canadian in the new 52. Hmm, that's interesting. I feel good about this, Luke says. If anyone currently working for DC is good at handing obscure stranger, uh, obscure characters like Strange, it's Lemire. I'll give you that. Uh, I've heard negative things about Lemire's take on Constantine, but... uh. That's been Andy saying that, and I trust Andy because I'm certain he has a lot more knowledge of the John Constantine, the Hellblazer character, than I do. But uh, I'm wondering how it'll work in the Justice League, especially on Earth, because Adam Strange, essentially on Earth, was just a regular guy. It wasn't until he got to Ron, or Ran, however you want to put it, that he became the sort of hero, the sort of Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon type uh, space hero so it'll be interesting to see what he does with them and it'll be interesting to see what other canadian characters they have so look forward to that but that's the end for luke's email i have one more email from tom panneries here uh in the form of an audio email now tom panneries if you don't know is the host of taking flight a robin and nightwing podcast and he's also the host of Pop Culture Affidavit, as well as a new podcast called In Country, which is dealing with the Marvel series The Nom. That's been a really excellent listen. He's covering the books and giving sort of historical data that goes along with the timelines that happen in the books. So it's really not only a nice review book or a nice, oh, what did Michael Bagley call it, index, index show for the book, but it also gives you some historical aspect of the book. And he sent in an email that's, like I said, is an audio email, uh, which tells you a little something. So we'll go ahead and play it right here. Hey, Sean, it's Tom Panneries here. I'm sending you an audio email because, uh, well, I've been loving the podcast. I've been actually going back and tracking down some old Guy Gardner issues. You convinced me to, after hearing your coverage, of like I, I was like, I really, really do need to to read more of this book, but I could have put that in the email though. What, what I'm sending you is, um, goes way back, uh, to toward the beginning of, of your series where you were looking at the ads and you had ads for Rocky D dinosaur extreme, which sounded like quite possibly the worst thing this side of Poochie to ever come out. Well, my son who is six years old now has these toys called switch and go dinos. Uh, they're basically like, tra they're basically transformers. They were, they're put out by Tonka, I believe, and there are vehicles like jeeps and planes and construction trucks and what have you that turn into dinosaurs. Uh, and he has got one that he got for his birthday. It's, I guess, kind of like a hot rod of some sort. It's purple and black with, uh, it kind of actually has like Baltimore Ravens colors, uh, to its ooh. uh, and we were playing with it a few days ago, and I, you know, you press buttons on this thing, and it makes different sounds. You know, it says things, it roars, and, and what have you, because, you know, they're all interactive and whatnot. And as I'm playing with this, I, I knew I had to send this your way, because, um, well, if you ever thought that nobody would ever think that Rocky D Dinosaur Stream actually was a good idea, not a good enough idea to put into a toy, you were wrong because I give you MC Roar. Okay, I'm going to start recording here. I'm MC Roar, that you get no Tesaurus. If you like dinos, then come explore us. <laughs> I've got the biggest head that you've ever seen. My mouth's full of sharp teeth that make me look mean. Show me some love. Oh. Switch and go dinos represent. <laughs> oh, snap. <laughs> Everybody knows how powerful my nose is. I can smell other dinos like ladies smell roses. I'm dropping rhymes from prehistoric times. 
<laughs> a dinosaur just I'm said I'm hungry, snap. let's eat. You got any meat? <laughs> Yo! <laughs> Where are my dinos at? <laughs> Mic check, one, two. I'm one of the biggest meat eaters of all time. Come kick it with me and listen to me rhyme. Uh. Stomp your feet. What does dinosaur mean? That's today's quiz. If you said terrible lizard, you're a dinosaur whiz. No, that's not. Dinosaur, that Dinosaurs are mad cool. Tyrannosaurus is terrible hey, lizard. Hey, ho! Uh. My long tail helps me keep my balance and flow. Uh. I'm a theropod by my boys, T-Rex and Spinosaurus. All the dino lovers in the house say, Roar! <laughs> Holla! <Yeah. laughs> I walk on two legs that are sturdy and strong. Holla. My tail helps me balance as really? I walk along. <laughs> yeah, put your claws up. Put your claws up. MC uh, Roar in the house. Raise the roof, My MC brain Roar. is shaped like a banana. <laughs> How crazy is that? <laughs> Giant southern lizard, that's the meaning of my name. I'm from South America. Northern dinosaurs are so lame. Uh. I lived 95 million years ago. Now that's old school. What up? Let's make some noise. I have... I have no words for this. <laughs> I really don't. And my son has this toy. Oh my lord. At least that's the sounds of him changing back into a car. Use as much of that or as little of that as you want. And uh, I love the podcast. I can't <laughs> wait for the next episode. Um, oh, God. <laughs> take care. <laughs> oh, Rocky D. You thought you only had no competition in the... Ridiculous over the top this. Oh I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Tom, thank you for sending that in. That was awesome. You you are a great parent to allow your kid to play with that thing and not just want to every second it makes some of those ridiculous statements to just chuck it in the trash. Tom, you're awesome. Incredible. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to be able to segue. I'm going to have to, I guess. How I'm going to segue from that into the coverage of Greenlander number 81, but I'm going to go ahead and do it right here and now. Greenlander number 81 was cover dated December 1996, and it was released on October 2nd of 1996. The cover price for the deluxe edition was $3.95 US and $5.50 Canada. The uh, direct market edition cost $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Funeral for a Hero. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler, penciler Daryl Banks, inker Romeo Tangal, colorist Pamela Rambo, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Exiting their rented car, former heroes John Stewart and Donna Troy look at the gathering of Earth's finest, who've come to where Coast City once stood to pay tribute to its follow defender, Hal Jordan, the former Green Lantern. Marveling at the attendance, John spots former GL Guy Gardner and goes to have a chat with him. As the two ex-Lanterns catch up with each other, Donna spots former Titan, Nightwing, and embraces him in an affectionate hug. The duo talk about all that has gone on and how Donna and Kyle have barely had time to deal with all of it. The two see Kyle chatting with the current Starman, Jack Knight, and Donna takes this opportunity to formally introduce Kyle to Nightwing. The former Boy Wonder congratulates Kyle on his relationship with Donna, and then heads inside to meet with the rest of the attendees. After a comment on what a nice guy Nightwing seems to be, Kyle mentions how uncomfortable he feels about this funeral. He had this relationship with Hal, but honestly didn't even know him. In fact, compared to the friends, heroes, and even villains that came to pay their respects, Cal is the one who is both the furthest, yet closest to the deceased hero. Putting all of that aside, Cal and Donna enter the cathedral arm in arm, while hidden above, a disapproving Batman looks on. 
The funeral begins as Superman takes the podium to speak about Hal. Saying that he knew Hal first as a hero, the Man of Steel calls forward some of the people closest to him to speak. Guy is first up, and he says that even though that he and Hal may have not gotten along, he always had respect for him and saw him as the best hero that any of us could have hoped to be. John steps up next and tells how Hal affected his outlook on life and how he felt that despite the things Hal did, Hal remained true to himself. Dinah Lance steps up next to speak about how Hal and Ollie, despite their differences, were always heroes. Then Wally West relates how he felt when his Uncle Barry died trying to save the world, and that eventually the hurt will end and time will heal all wounds. Carol Ferris speaks to the assembled of their relationship and through all of its ups and downs, she loved him for the hero he was. As a grief-stricken Carol walks away, Kyle takes to the podium to deliver his final words. He says that he'll never be able to replace Hal, but he will try to carry on his legacy. Even though the two were often at odds, Kyle realizes how important Hal truly was. And with this, Kyle dissolves the construct cathedral to reveal the sun shining upon the gathered mourners. Kyle turns to Alan Scott, who uses his powers to transform the flame that stands as a memorial to Ghost City into a green flame to honor its protector. At the same time, Swamp Thing turns the desolate ground into a lush, verdant Eden. And, as a final tribute, Kyle creates a glistening emerald statue, depicting Hal Jordan as the hero he always was, the Green Lantern. fitting and very somber ending to Hal's career. Everyone's showing up to the funeral and it's it's the way it should have ended. But I'll touch more on this after I cover my notes. Uh, we'll go ahead and start off with the cover. Now, this came out in two editions. One was just a regular newsstand edition, which has images of all the major heroes carrying green flames in their hand, which were constructs produced by Kyle. The deluxe edition, which is the one I have, has that cover on the inside, but the outer cover is a sort of, well, it's a very 90s stylized cover. It actually has a sort of roughened feel, and it's supposed to look like a, I guess, kind of like stone or a tombstone with the Green Lantern symbol cut out in the middle and the, uh, the actual circle of it, a sort of shiny material. And it says, his light will burn forever. So it's, both covers are really nice. Banks's art for the actual direct uh, news direct newsstand cover looks pretty good, but it does kind of reek of the sort of gimmicky covers that you were getting at this time in the 90s. But it is uh, an important issue. We're uh, saying farewell to Hal Jordan. So uh, an epic cover like this that uh, ran for $3.95. Wow. That was uh, that was pretty uh, impressive price to have to pay for a comic at that time page one i think it's nice that the first people we actually see come to hal's funeral aren't actually any supers it's donna and john the two people who were once superheroes but are now have just civilian identities so it's nice to know that it's not just a gathering of the elite it's also people who had ties to hal that are coming to his funeral so uh, we'll see more of that uh, throughout the uh, book then on page two, we get another sort of long shot uh, view of the assemblage of heroes coming to there. And we've got Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. flying in and the two speedsters and Wally West and Impulse coming in. It's a nice assemblage of the heroes. Thankfully, it's a very bloodlines free image. So uh, we've gotten away from the uh, from the 90s qualities of the book and we're starting to get into the more writer-driven era of the 90s with the JLA and stuff like that coming on. The era where stories took a, well, took a priority over the artwork, in my opinion. Page three, it's nice to see that John and ha uh, Guy are finally back on speaking terms. In fact, uh, Guy is actually really cordial to John, and it's kind of sad that the death of Hal was the thing that had to bring them together. 
But I like the fact that Mars, again, is writing Guy to be the character that Bo Smith kind of put him out to be, that he's at peace with who he is, and he doesn't feel the need to be the brash, arrogant hothead anymore. Moving on to page four, I'm glad to see that Don and Dick are meeting up as well. Um, Now, I know in the Titans run that Don and Dick never got together, as far as I know, intimately. Uh, Dick was usually with Starfire, and he usually, I think, viewed Donna or Wonder Girl more as a friend or a companion. But it's nice to see that he has that strong friendship, and that strong feelings for it. It translates really well on the pages here. Uh, moving on to page five, I think this is interesting. And uh, J. David Weeder talked about it, a little bit about this, that when James Robinson was writing the Jack Knight Starman, very rarely would you see Starman outside of comics that either James Robinson wasn't writing himself or he hadn't sanctioned him to be here. So I'm thinking this has got to be one of the few times that you'll actually see uh, the Jack Knight, Starman, and Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern interact. And it's a shame because the characters seem to have, well, kind of a kinship. They have the same sort of similar interest. Here they're talking about uh, uh, pictures from the Saturday Evening Post. And, you know, they're talking about nostalgia and art. And it, it seemed like these would be unnatural to be characters that would actually get along and interact. But unfortunately, you didn't see, see all that much of that. Page 7, we get a first look at uh, some of the attendees the Howl's funeral, and we see it runs the gamut of pretty much everyone in the DC Universe. On this uh, first panel, we get John Constantine of Sw- and Swamp Thing uh, making their little debuts from the Vertigo Universe, where I guess they kind of have a sort of a crossover between the DC and the Vertigo line, but I guess they can do that. We also see uh, some former Green Lanterns. We've got Brick, Salak, and I don't know who that... I don't think it's Graf Torin, but it's a couple other Green Lanterns that I just can't name right off the top of my head. Then, surprisingly, we've got a couple of villains here. and I noticed the Tattooed Man and, obviously, Sonar, but not the metal, red-haired, hair metal Sonar, but uh, I think the original Sonar, the one with the... Uh, sort of band leader outfit. And of course, finally, we've got Carol and Highface as well. So the the assemblage of people who came out just doesn't run the superhero community. It's also, amazingly enough, friends and hopefully reformed villains as well. So yeah, and you would think that if a villain was going to show up to a hero's funeral, they wouldn't try anything stupid. Although with Sonar, you could never rule that out. Then on page 8 and 9, you get a sort of two-page splash of the heroes walking down the uh, aisle with all the assembled heroes in the in the seats. Of course, uh, the main people, Carol and Thomas and uh, Superman and, uh, well, I mean, John and Guy and Diana are all up front. I do, however, find it ironic that if you look in the background on page 8, back in the back, Lobo's here. Yeah, it's still a 90s comic, and Lobo had to show up, and he's he's essentially the Kurgan. He's just almost being sacrilegious in here, propping his feet up on the back of a pew, and I think Captain Adam is actually turned around to look at him, you know, just to make sure that he doesn't cause any trouble, so... It's a 90s comic. Lobo has to be there. Then on page 10, of course you didn't see Batman and his family in the crowd with uh, the Tim Drake Robin and Nightwing up here. They're hanging out sort of near the uh, balcony of the cathedral and looking down on it. And of course, Batman is still rather reluctant to give Hal his due. He still has that feeling that Hal may have not reformed entirely, so... That's him, but we also get an appearance of Dead Man too, which also works in the Batman family. Is you know, Dead Man says that you know he hopes that he's finally found peace. Well, so it's nice to see, like I said, the assemblage of the DC universe here. Page eleven, panel two, we get Superman being the first to the podium to speak, and he says that you know it's never easy to bury your own, but this time it's especially hard. Uh, this is the second time I've been asked to preside over something like this. Now, 
I'm trying to remember the first time that he had to preside over a funeral for someone. I, I've got to assume that it might be something to do with the Flash's funeral, because I can't really think of a funeral or a high-profile superhero funeral other than that up to this time. You know, except for, you know, Clark's own funeral, which I don't think he could have really presided over, so maybe that's it. Then starting on page 12 and moving on, we get the various people giving their eulogies for Hal, and we start up with Guy, which is really nice because Guy and Hal had a very antagonistic relationship throughout the series, and now finally Guy comes around and in the end says that Hal truly was a hero, and he's the hero that he wanted to be, and it's it's great for the character of Guy. Ron Mars is writing Guy in the sort of template that Bo Smith put forward to him, and I like the fact that he's changed Guy from the arrogant SOB to this really well-rounded, tempered character. We move on, of course, the next page on page 13. We've got uh, John giving his eulogy, and I think John had more of an affection and a more of affinity to Hal, so his eulogy is basically telling him how Hal turned him from a sort of angry, mad-at-the-world young man to the hero that he is today. And even though he's not a hero anymore, he says how much Hal played an effect into him being the hero that he was. Moving on, we've got uh, Dinah, Wally, and Carol giving their eulogies on page 14. And then finally on pages 15 and 16, Kyle gets his turn, and it's kind of difficult for Kyle because he really has no relationship to Hal other than the fact that he's carrying on his lineage. He doesn't have a connection emotionally or friend-wise to him, but he does give Hal a send-off of someone who has at least a respect for what his purpose in life was. And this, of course, leads to Kyle pointing his uh, ring towards the ceiling and dissolving the cathedral, at least the roof of the cathedral, to allow the sun to shine in. And it's a very, well, I guess it could be considered a ham-fisted metaphor, but having the light of the sun, which Hal gave his life to reignite, shining upon the people at the funeral, I guess it is sort of a heavy-handed metaphor for religion, but it's honestly very apt, and I think it works well in the story. And we're dealing with a, a character who essentially reignited a star, so I think you can take the slight leap of logic and put a little religion in it. You know, so long as it's not overt, which I don't feel that it is here. Then moving on to page 18, we give Alan Scott, or Sentinel at the time, doing his part to memorialize Hal, and he takes the fire that was allowed, that was left burning in Coast City as a memorial for it, and changes the flame into an eternal green flame to basically to memorialize Hal here. And I think it's kind of interesting that on these last panels, all the people who are doing things have a connection to green, as we've got Sentinel here. And then on the next page, we get Swamp Thing doing his thing and turning this sort of barren, desolate land that had been that was destroyed by the uh, by the Engine City in the Reign of the Superman story to uh, refurbishing the ground and letting grass and flowers and everything grow here. So it's nice that Swamp Thing does it. And then finally on page twenty-two, we get Kyle doing his one last green thing with creating a ring construct statue of Hal in a heroic pose. And it's not Hal as Parallax, it is Hal as the hero, as Green Lantern, as the person he's known as, and the person who I think he ended up being in the end. Yes, he didn't necessarily end his life as Green Lantern, but he lived his life as Green Lantern. So, it's a wonderful ending to uh, to Hal Jordan's career, and I think it's just a, a great book. I'm going to go ahead and take a look at some of the ads, because it's been a long time since I've talked about ads, so I'm going to go see what kind of ads they have in this book right now. And unfortunately, because I've got the deluxe edition that covers this 
sort of thick paperboard and I don't want to bend it or anything, but the front and side cover is the funnel with the rainbow going into it and the Skittles coming out saying, taste the rainbow. So, yep, Skittles that changed their logo and or their ad campaign in quite a while. The next ad is for the Sega Saturn and it looks like Windows 95 version game called Three Dirty Dwarves. Now, I've never played this, but it looks like you play one of three dwarves and it's a three-player game that you can on the Sega Saturn and I guess you it's just a sort of platformer I guess however is this is kind of interesting this is the first time I think I've ever seen one of those uh, ESRB ratings for the, for the game we've got it's rated T for teen here so you know the video game systems must have taken a bit of flack from the whole Mortal Kombat thing and started rating the games Moving on the next page, we get an ad for the, what is this? The Johnny Quest video game? No, it's a Johnny Quest 3D state-of-the-art Tecto 3D glasses, two CD-ROM set. So I don't know whether this, I'm looking at, I don't know whether this is a game or it's a bunch of stories, but this is the revamped Johnny Quest, uh, not the 1960s one, but I think they came out with the new adventures of Johnny Quest in the uh, mid-90s, so there you go, Johnny Quest, grabbing at him before the Venture Brothers did. Then the next page after that, we get an advertisement for not the movie, but the video game of Space Jam, where you can play as Michael Jordan or Bugs Bunny and play basketball against your favorite and maybe not-so-favorite Looney Tunes characters. Fun stuff. Then a bit more onto the book, we get a two-page splash, a sideways two-page splash of he's big on action. It's a 12-inch action man figure. This is pretty retro, I guess, because this is the sort of G.I. Joe, original G.I. Joe size figure. Uh, He looks like he's got some interesting points of articulation. He bends at the elbows and uh, his biceps twist, so it looks like, you know, you could has punching action or something but action man he's got a sort of generic almost six million dollar man looking face sculpt but i never really realized that they would have action man toys this late in the comic book so there you go then we get another two-page splash of a bunch of uh trading cards for basically i guess baseball cards i don't think that's any specific one they've got fleer uh Skybox, Upper Deck, I think it's for all the uh, comic, or not the comic book, but all of the uh, baseball trading cards, so there you go. If you are a fan of baseball, this was probably uh, pretty exciting to you. For me, eh, not so much. But then in the back inside cover, we get another ad for the Sliders show starring Jerry O'Connell that was coming to Fox. Uh, We covered that, and we covered what was on the back outside cover, the Nights into Dreams game for the Sega Dreamcast. Fun game, but unfortunately the Sega Dreamcast just didn't take off as well as the PlayStation. I think, the, like I said before, the PlayStation was the game console that everyone had to have, and the Saturn, although it may have been a much better system, just didn't really, didn't really grab people's hearts and minds at the time. I also wanted to mention, I forgot to do this while I was making my notes, um, there was a backup story in the Deluxe Edition. I don't think it was in the Direct Market Edition, but it was drawn by Gil Kane and written by Ron Mars, and it has, uh, along with some new story and artwork, which is just basically how, you know, defeating some of the accordion uh, weaponers who have come to Earth, it's essentially the retelling of uh, Hal Jordan's origin from, I think, Showcase number 22. So I'm not really going to go cover that because it's not essential to the story. But if you want to go listen to someone talk about that, go check out back issues or back episodes of Thomas DJ's DJ Comics Cavalcade. I think in one of the earlier issues, he covers uh, Showcase 22 and... Boy, does he have a lot of fun with that. Uh, Thomas does a great job covering the uh, Green Lantern stories from that. But that does it for my notes. That does it for the ads. I'm going to take a quick little break and play a promo here. And when I come back, I'm going to give kind of my thoughts on the whole ending of the Hal Jordan run and what happened afterwards. So stay tuned after this little break. 
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we're back. And because I've been covering these comics since, well, January of 2012... And I've covered about 81 issues of them, including some ancillary books, the Emerald Lanta or the Emerald Dawn 1 and 2 books, and the Guy Gardner Reborn books. I think I have a pretty good handle on what happened during this era in Green Lantern, and I loved the way that Hal Jordan was portrayed during this era, even when he was portrayed as a bad guy. Hal Jordan truly was a hero, and... I like the fact that he actually got a heroic send-off. People may not have been happy with what happened to Hal in the whole Emerald Twilight series, and rightfully so. You have a hero who essentially went insane, and they could have done worse with him. They could have made him to be an ongoing villain for the majority of the DC Universe. But at his heart, Hal was a hero. Hal was a person who just wanted to do the right thing. It's just what I seem to believe was editorial mandate wanted to take him and turn him around into something else. Thankfully, they had writers like Ron Mars to come in and write Hal a a wonderful ending. And that's kind of what I want to focus on here. Uh... Hal had an ending. He had his time, and he went out in Final Night in the best way he possibly could. He had a heroic death. A death that sometimes heroes don't get to have. In fact, it's a death that I think that rivals what Barry Allen had in The Crisis. He went out saving the people and the planet that he called his own. And isn't that what heroes are supposed to do? I mean, heroes are supposed to emulate, in some ways, real life, just taken up to an incredible, sometimes unbelievable level. But these heroes are no different than the heroes in real life. In some cases, the heroes die. And it doesn't... It doesn't make me sad. Well, it makes me sad that these heroes die, but it makes it more real for me. And it makes it interesting that the ideal of Hal Jordan can be carried on by other characters. The same goes with the Wally West Flash. Wally took on the mantle of Barry and tried to be the Flash in the best way that he could. Kyle here is doing the same thing and trying on to carry on the mantle of Hal. And the idea at the time that heroes could die and be gone from this fictionalized universe gave the stories a sense of reality, for lack of a better term. I'm not saying that the bringing back of Barry Allen and the bringing back of Hal Jordan are a bad thing. If they have good stories to tell, then let the writers tell them and let the readers enjoy them. But for me, being a fan of this era, I thoroughly enjoyed the fact that it it had a grounding in reality. With all these supernatural things and all these amazing things going on, people flying through the universe with rings powered by willpower, that they could add a little bit of real life to it and add the tragedy of death into it 
gave the books a bit more for me to latch on to. When, when death is so not meaningless, but just so inconsequential now in the DC universe, it diminishes the idea of these characters having a relationship that you can get behind, uh, a way that you can attach your own emotions to them. And I think that diminishes the characters in some way. Uh, I'm going to harp on a fact that happened in uh, Blackest Night in the series. Speaking of death, uh, there was a, I can't remember what issue, but it was an issue of Green Lantern Corps where Kyle Rayner made a sacrifice to save all the lanterns on Oa by uh, allowing this explosion to go off, effectively killing all of the Black Lanterns, but taking his life as well. Now, the story would have been amazing and would have had more resonance and more feeling to me if it were not for the fact that the very next issue, not even halfway through the book, Kyle's sacrifice is essentially nullified because Sorenik comes and revives him. It felt like a plot device. And I guess what I'm saying is the death of Hal Jordan here does not feel like a plot device. It feels like a farewell. It feels like they're sending off this character and it feels like they're giving him the send-off that he justly deserves. Modern comics may not be for me. These comics are, right now, like Shag and Michael and so many others have said, these are my little spots of joy. And I'm hoping that some of the people who are big fans of the Jeff Johns run and current comics would be at least willing to come back and look at these books and try and find the joy that I find them in as well, because the stories are excellent, the characters are wonderful, the writers are sublime, it's... The, the DC Universe didn't start with Jeff Johns coming onto it. He's a great writer, but there were great writers before him, and there were even great writers before this era that I was in, that I'm covering. So... Expand your horizons. Look to more than just the current books and find the spot that you're comfortable with and find the spot that you love. Because far too often I've found, and this goes to you know things that I've seen on Facebook, and this being like I talked with J. David Weeder last week, being the summer of nerd rage, that we need to find things that make us happy with comics. We need to find things that we enjoy, and we need to embrace the fun in comics. Yeah, dealing with Hal Jordan's death isn't fun, but dealing with Kyle, dealing with Guy Gardner, that's been fun. And I've enjoyed all of it, and I hope some way it's translating to you having some enjoyment too. But I don't want to ramble on anymore about this. I'm hitting over the one-hour mark, so... I just want to say thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the coverage of Green Lantern 81. Come back next week where I'm going to have another special guest on the show. Uh, My semi-regular co-host might be back, and we're going to be talking about Green Lantern number 82. After that, I'll probably get back to doing some other comics. Uh, I've got a few things that actually have Guy Gardner in them. In fact, a couple of things that might be written by Bo Smith as well, so... I'll be looking forward to that, and hopefully you'll be looking forward to it, too. So, I hope you guys come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks Family Podcast. We'll see you next Friday, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too. 
as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new rule 2, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Queen and the song Who Wants to Live Forever off their album A Kind of Magic. This album is the soundtrack album for the movie Highlander, the first Highlander with Christopher Lambert. If you'd like to get the movie, get the soundtrack, or buy the single itself, the one place where you should go to get all this information and get all this stuff would be Amazon.com. And the one way you should go to Amazon.com is through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hit the page at 2TrueFreaks.com, look up the top left-hand corner, and there should be a banner there directing to Amazon. Click on that banner and make a purchase of either the album, the movie, or the song, or anything else your heart would desire at Amazon.com. Whenever you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, a small amount of money goes back to help the 2TrueFreaks website, and it doesn't cost you a penny extra. So if you're looking for music, electronics, movies games, pretty much anything that you could ever want your little grubby hands to get on, make sure that when you go to Amazon.com, you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com.